The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would speak to us and feed us from the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Lord, that you would re remove distraction from our mind in these moments, that we might see you more clearly, that we might walk with you more nearly, that we might love you more dearly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, why don't you take your seats. We're into our fourth Sunday looking at Skinner, sinners, scoundrels, outcasts, scumbags, scallywags, and all the rest of them. And we've seen that Jesus is not shy to eat with tax collectors, to engage with people who might be considered on the fringe of society, that he draws to himself people from distant lands who seek the long-promised one. And in each of these situations, we have seen the Lord exercise perfect control. And today in Luke 8, we discover on this occasion Jesus exercising a demon-possessed man. If you put the events of Luke 7 and 8 together, you discover two things emerge with absolute clarity. One to do with Jesus' identity and the other to do with Jesus' mission. Firstly, we see that Jesus calms the storm and has control of the natural world. Then we see him exercising a demon-possessed man. He has control of the supernatural world. 
He heals the woman who has been unwell for years. He has control of the physical world. And he raises a dead girl. He has control of the eternal world. If you read Luke chapter 8 on its own, you do not need to spend one more minute of your life trying to work out who is in charge of the world. We are deliberately, clearly, absolutely, and wonderfully told here in this historical narrative that Jesus is in control of the world. Secondly, Luke then, in these two chapters, has collected all of these stories and put them together to present to us a number of instances of salvation. The merest glance will show uh, that not all instances of salvation are the same, but rather they are presented in a holistic fashion. We read in chapter 7 of the centurion slave who is saved from dying. The widow of Nain's son who was already dead and about to be buried is saved from death. The woman in Simon's house is saved from her guilty past. Uh, the disciples on the lake are saved from drowning. The demoniac is saved from the power of demons. The woman is saved from physical disability and weakness. Jairus' daughter is saved from the sleep of death. In fact, Luke goes to such great lengths to bring out this theme of salvation in these two chapters that he even adds, unlike Matthew and Mark, when he tells the parable of the sower, the reason uh, that the devil snatches up the seed that fell by the wayside, this is Luke 8 verse 12, uh, is so that they may not believe and be saved. Luke wants us to understand Jesus' identity and his mission. Now friends, if you get this clear, if you get the key in your hand from the New Testament, then the world and your life will begin to become clear. If you don't have it, then the world will become a place that you have to bash and smash your way through, taking from it what you can, grabbing what you must, and trying to get the best of it. But once you know that there is someone who runs the world, who is sovereign and who rules and who is above every person and that it is possible to have a relationship with him and speak with him and hear him speak to you in his word, you are greatly blessed. So don't miss the permanent significance of this historical incident where Jesus casts out the demon. I have three points for you to hang your thoughts on this morning. If you're a note taker, you can use those. If you just like to listen, you can try and use those mentally in your mind. Uh, the first is this, number one, uh, Jesus has the highest power. In verse 26, if you have your Bibles in front of you, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. They met there a man, verse 27, who was possessed by demons. In verse 33, these demons are commanded by Jesus to leave the man. And they go into a herd of pigs. And the pigs rush down a steep embankment into the lake and they were drowned. And just incidentally, these pigs, don't think of them like um, babe pigs. Think of African bush pigs or Middle Eastern bush pigs. These were not cute, cuddly pigs. Verse 35, the man is now transformed and is sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. There are two things that we must understand if we're going to make sense of the miracles of Jesus as a whole and this miracle in particular. Firstly, the miracles that Jesus performed were signs. And like all good signs, they reveal and announce something. 
The significance of Jesus' signs revealed that the kingdom of God was really and substantially breaking into the world in the person of Jesus, and that the powers of that kingdom were there where Jesus was and when the crowds gathered around him. In his presence, sickness gave way to health, deformity gave way to wholeness, blindness gave way to sight, deafness gave way to hearing, madness gave way to, insan- to, san- to sanity, madness gave way to sanity, and even the unruly and destructive power of the storm was tamed. The poor in Israel were being invited to enter into and have fellowship with God that belonged to the time of the restoration of the kingdom. And it was to these things that Jesus referred to the Pharisees' questions in Luke 17 when they asked him about the kingdom. And he said, the kingdom of God is not coming with observation, nor will they say, behold, here or there, For behold, the kingdom of God is among you. The signs, the miracles announce that the king of God's kingdom has arrived. And so the whole of Jesus' kingdom preaching, miracle working, exorcistic activities can be seen as a sign and activity of God's kingdom. And the concentration and the war, the spiritual battle that is taking place is because Jesus has come to defeat the power of Satan, who we're told, uh, again in Luke, has a kingdom, uh, but that this, when a strong man who is fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides his plunder. That is, Jesus has come to rob the strong man's house. He's come to defeat and take away the powers of the evil one. Secondly, this incident in Luke 8 reveals to us that Jesus is the master of the supernatural. Not just the king of God's kingship, but that with this kingship, absolute authority and power extends to this realm. Now, if you believe in the spiritual battle, and I hope you do believe uh, something in the spiritual battle, Paul goes to great lengths in Ephesians 6 to give us careful instruction on the spiritual battle, that we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual battle. We must understand that this supernatural world, this spiritual battle, is not out of control. It is not uh, evenly balanced. It's like a heavyweight boxer fighting against the flyweight boxer. The devil and Jesus are not in the same weight class. And this incident in Luke 8 shows that Jesus is the master of the supernatural. And of course, when he gets to the cross, there he will ultimately, absolutely, and eternally disarm the devil. And it is important for us to remember the spiritual battle. I know that most of you do not live here at church Uh, Only strange people like clergy live here at church. You live in the normal world. You go about your lives. You drive all over creation for your children. You sit in meetings for work. You go to the doctor. You go to the shops. You finally get at home and put something to entertain you on. And then you go to sleep. And you live in the normal world away from this building, away from this particular gathering. But I do hope that there comes a time at some point between a Monday and a Saturday during those 10,000 little moments that make up your life uh, where your soul becomes restless 
and you realize that the things that you are filling your life with are not ultimate things. I hope that there comes a time, please tell me that there does come a time where, where you realize uh, that the most important things of this world are inconsequential in light of this highest authority and this highest power. I hope that you will remember in that moment that there is one who sits on the throne of the world who has been given according to the scriptures the highest place and that you are able to speak to him and relate to him and belong to him and trust him and serve him in this world, in this time. And I trust then that in those moments when you're driving around or carrying your shopping, that you will give thanks that there is one who rules the universe and that things are not in the hands of clay people like us that things are not ultimately the hands of sinful people like us. Because here in Luke 8, this exorcism has ongoing significance. Jesus has the highest power, and it is ultimate and absolute and complete over everything. The second thing I want you to see this morning, number two, is a complete transformation. Uh, what Jesus does for this man is nothing superficial. It's not just a fix-up or a tune-up. He doesn't just give him some clothes, offer him some counseling, give him some education, and send him on his way. What Jesus does for this man is to inwardly and eternally transform him. And the problem for us is because the world is spiritually unaware and because the world is uh, spiritually asleep and because the world tends to be opposed to Christian activity, it doesn't understand conversion for what it is. If you spend any time in the real world, and we've already addressed that you do, uh, the world does not understand and tends to misrepresent what Christianity is. It thinks that we are always searching for God and doesn't recognize that it is God who always takes the initiative. Friends, if conversion could be visibly demonstrated, if I could bring someone up here this morning and show you what conversion looks like on the inside, it would look something like what is happening here in Luke 8. It would look something like a person who is in such dreadful circumstances, such danger and condition, like this demon-possessed man being brought into such valuable privilege and condition. So much so that you and I would never take conversion lightly again. Look for a moment at how hopeless this man is. Look at verse 26. We meet a man outside of the promised land in this region of the Gerasenes. It was Gentile country. It was 10 kilometers, so about six and a half miles southeast of the promised land along the Lake of Galilee. And we know that it's Gentile territory uh, for a number of reasons. The phrase that the man uses in verse 28, son of the most high God, that's a Gentile phrase. Uh, there's the detail about the herd of pigs. Uh, pigs were unclean. Uh, no self-respecting Jew would own a herd of pigs. Uh, these were pig farmers outside the promised land. And at the end of the incident, Jesus tells the man to go freely preaching and telling all that God has done for him. Every time Jesus is in uh, the promised land, he tells uh, Jews that he heals not to say anything about what he's done. So he's in Gentile territory, verse 27. He is uh, possessed by a demon. If you want to understand what possession is, you need to understand that uh, possession primarily takes place when we read the Gospels. It is a Gospel event. Uh, and the reason for this is that Jesus was in the world as God incarnate. 
And so here we have the devil facing God incarnate. Uh, The devil, C.S. Lewis, has no original ideas. He can only mimic or distort. Uh, I'd like it to go on record that I've gone 18 months in this place without a C.S. Lewis quote. That's my first one. (laughs) Here is the devil attempting evil incarnate. The devil attempting to counteract Jesus. What we need to understand uh, is that exorcisms are gospel events. In fact, there's only two incidents outside of the gospels where we encounter this kind of thing. Because this is the graphic backlash to Jesus being in the world. And if we look at the man, we will notice a few things about him. Firstly, in verse 28, he is hostile to Jesus, shouting and frightened. This man is marked by gross hostility. The second thing we discover is that he is disintegrated. Verse 28, he wants to be left alone, but then he's coming to Jesus because he obviously knows that he needs help. He doesn't know whether to go near or leave him alone, to call out or to keep quiet. Thirdly, in verse 27, he is separated from people. He is naked, alone, and lives in the tombs, totally isolated and separated from man. Fourthly, he is beyond human help. Verse 29, the people have tried chaining him, but that has proved to be hopeless because he has supernatural evil strength. Fifthly, he is a drain on the community. Verse 29 again, he had to be chained a number of times and placed under guard, and yet he continued to break free. And so we see that he is utterly alienated, that this is not just a mental or psychological condition. And we know this because at verse 33, the demons are going to move into the pigs, and the pigs are going to self-destruct and stampede to their deaths. So that no one will be able to say after this incident, uh, wasn't, wasn't it great that Bob got better? Everyone will remember that this man is a new man in their midst and that what came out of him was enough to drive a herd of pigs to their deaths. That was his dreadful condition. But now look at this complete transformation. Verse 35, we find him sitting at Jesus' feet, no longer terrified of Jesus, but devoted to him. He doesn't want distance, uh, like the townspeople who continue to want distance because they say at the end, Jesus, will you leave? We don't want you here. This man wants to be at Jesus' feet. He wants closeness and intimacy. Uh, Second thing about his transformation, he's clothed. He has become acceptable, appropriate, sociable. He could walk into the sanctuary at Holy Trinity and we wouldn't cast a glance sideways. The third thing is that he is in his right mind. The effect of Jesus on a person is always to bring sanity. The proof that a person is converted and growing is that they are more sane. Friends, do you know any person who can do this? Who can take a man and in 10 seconds move him from being like the man in the verse 20s to being like this man at Jesus' feet in verse 35 and on? It is only Jesus who can do this who can take a man who is so dreadfully destroyed and make them so constructive for all eternity. Thirdly, what happens to Legion uh, is Luke 8, after this totally astounding transformation, number three, is he is moved to the deepest devotion. I don't want you to miss the New Testament framework that tells us in a sense that this is the regular work of Jesus. Uh, If you would, this is 
uh, conversion written with sky writing. This is conversion writ large. This is conversion written for the whole city to see. What has happened to me, what has happened to you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is what happened in Luke 8. Now, granted, uh, and I acknowledge that it's not visually as striking as this man. It's not outwardly as dramatic, but it is as invisibly and internally significant. This is why Paul can say in Colossians 1 that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And later on, Paul continues, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is no exaggeration. Friends, uh, you might be tempted to think all kinds of things about conversion, but what we need to understand, my conversion, your conversion, is no less of a miracle than what took place in the life of this man, and it ought to lead us in our lives to the deepest devotion. I hope that you'll see in Luke 8 that the Bible pulls the curtain back on this spiritual battle, that this work on legion and on every converted Christian owes its power to the crucifixion. I know that it looks in Luke 8 as though Jesus just spoke a word and the man was delivered, healed, saved. And it is on one level. Jesus just speaks. But actually the power will come at the cross where Jesus will endure his suffering. And in his hell, the undoing of the devil, that is where he will disarm the devil. That is where the release will come. That is where the possibility of a person being brought out of darkness into the kingdom will come because Jesus left the kingdom for the darkness. And that is why we should be so thankful for the crucifixion, for that is where our release finds its power. And that is why it should lead us into the deepest, completest, and most absolute devotion to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, as we bring all of this to a close, I do want to point out one other thing to you in Luke chapter 8, and that is that there are four times that people speak to Jesus. Uh, There are four prayers, if you will. In verse 28, the man says, leave me alone, and Jesus said no, because Jesus was going to bless this man out of his socks, even though he didn't have any. In verse 32, the townspeople, uh, the demons say to Jesus, uh, don't destroy us and send us into the abyss, send us into the pigs. And Jesus said yes, because it was part of Jesus' plan to leave behind a missing herd of pigs, proof of what had taken place. In verse 37, the townspeople come and say, leave us alone. You are more scary than the demons. And Jesus said yes. Partly as judgment, but partly because he was on the move to preach the gospel in other places. And in verse 38, the man comes to Jesus and says, let me go with you. And again, Jesus says, no, I have even better plans for you. 
I care for this community. I'm going to leave you behind and you are going to preach to these people and tell what God has done for you. And that's exactly what he does in verse 39. He goes and tells all that Jesus had done for him. And friends, what I want you to see here in, in this Jesus who has the highest power, who accomplishes uh, the, the deepest and most complete transformation, uh, who calls us into the deepest devotion, we have a Savior who hears our prayers and answers them perfectly in every way. He says no, he says yes. And so tomorrow when you get up and decide that you're going to set aside time to read your Bible and pray, you don't need to pray saying to yourself, I wonder if Jesus will hear me. You don't need to think to yourself, these are terrible, unworthy prayers. You don't need to think to yourself that Jesus is uninterested. You need to know that he hears you and he knows what to do with your prayers and he has the complete picture about what is happening in all of life. And he is the sovereign, wise, faithful, loving king of God's kingdom. And that is why I hope you will lift your voice to him tomorrow and trust him and read your Bible. And as you receive a promise, as you hear a word of command, you will hold on to it throughout the day that you will walk with him. For he is the person who loves you more than... You can finish that sentence. At the end of Luke chapter 8, Jesus says that the mark of his family is that they don't just listen to the sermon, but they do it. And it would be an absolute tragedy if the storm obeyed Jesus, and the demons obeyed Jesus, and the sickness obeyed Jesus, and that death obeyed Jesus, and you did not. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Thank you for giving us this picture of the Lord Jesus with complete power, working this transformation who so many of us have experienced in our own conversions. Father, we pray that we would not take this lightly, that we would see this event for what it is, and that we truly would see Jesus more clearly, that we would love him more dearly, and that we would walk with him in this life and into eternity more nearly every day of our lives, and we ask this in his name, amen.